0: Hey everybody, I'm Tim Whitaker along with Rob McMichael and Jordan Renault. this is our podcast Coffee, Theology, and Jesus. Our purpose for this podcast is to discuss this messy, difficult, and amazing thing we call the Christian faith. As Christians, we are encouraged and challenged constantly to see what the Bible teaches us about who Jesus was and how he lived and how we can better represent his message every day. Join us each episode as we explore how this relationship with Jesus affects everything from politics and religion to relationships and theology. Now that you know a little more about us, let's get into this week's episode.
1: Continuing our series on racism in the church, we were so glad to have special guest Dorian Morgan this week. Dorian is a pastor at Restoration Station Christian Fellowship, but is also a practicing lawyer, so we had him on to discuss his perspective from both a pastor and a lawyer on the racism that is and has been plaguing the U.S., For most of the episode, we found that it was just best to sit back and take in what Dorian was discussing, but towards the end, we do try to get to some practical lessons that all of us, especially Christians, can take away on how to continue to eradicate systemic racism in the church and influence the world around us. Let's jump in and join the conversation this week.
0: All right. Welcome everyone to the Coffee Theology and Jesus Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Whitaker, joined with Robbie Michael Jordan Bruno, and a special guest, Pastor Dorian Morgan. Hi everyone. Hey. How's Hello. it going, sir? <laughs> Great to see everyone. Um well, everyone, as you know, we have uh, started a uh, I guess three or four part series on the church and racism. So Um, One of the people that I thought of right away for this conversation was Pastor Dorian, who I kind of have, I think I've known you for maybe six or seven years now, Pastor Dorian. Yeah, yeah, at least. a a good time. Sure. And we got connected, I think, through Jerry. He was the bridge. Through
2: through Jerry (laughs) McCarty. uh, It it was either at the bridge or either at um, Camp Melody.
0: Yeah, Camp Melody. Yeah, Yeah, and and you've been there with us, I think, almost every year pretty much.
2: At least five, six years. I don't you know, know how long you've been doing it.
0: Yeah, as one of our speakers. So it's been great having you every year. And, you know, you have such an impact. I know you're pretty, you're obviously pretty established in Burlington. You have a church off of one, you know, off of the Route
2: 130. Yep. Yep. We are Restoration Station Christian Fellowship in Edgewater Park, New Jersey. Um, we're right in the Hoover uh, Plaza. It used to be called the, uh, why did I, I say that? Used to be called something else. Now it's the Hoover Plaza. <laughs> it's right in Edgewater Park, uh, Suite A6. And uh, come see us anytime. We we stream live on, on Facebook as well as uh, controversially. Uh, we are opening up now for the public. Uh, doing by uh, what my wife did, uh, what's it called? E bytes Okay. Uh, where you can get tickets to come. It's free. No, we're not charging to come to church. We Is just it th- need to. Through Eventbrite maybe? Eventbrite. That's the name of it. Mm-hmm. that That's the way so that we can control how many people come. Because there's sense. obviously limitations on numbers.
0: Right. Hey, Rob, really quick. I'm not seeing anything coming through on the Facebook Live, and I don't see a recording button. So are you sure we're going live? Okay. I'm just making sure. If we're live <laughs> or okay. live, I just don't see anything on Facebook. So um, anyway. Okay, cool. Just want to double check. Um, so... I figured we hop right into our topic today. Um, you know, Pastor Dorian, for, for our listeners, or our, I guess our watchers and listeners out there, um, would you mind kind of giving us some of your background? You know, I know you're a pastor. You also practice law, which is really a unique, a unique combination.
2: Yeah. Um, so, born and raised Burlington Township, uh, New Jersey. Uh, 1988 grad. Uh, I came up all the way through the school system there. Loved it. Uh, went on to Trenton State College, which is now the College of New Jersey. Uh, uh, the first year, uh, year and a half, I loved it too much, so much so that they kicked me out. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> however, uh, I went out and, and started, uh, when, when, when they dismissed me, uh, I went out for a while and said, you know what, then, because dad said, you're not coming home, you're, you're either going to work or you're gonna do something. Uh, so I went out and, and started to, uh, try to get into the army. Uh, that was 1990. Uh, I, I don't even wanna say anything because many of you probably weren't even born in 90, but 1990.
0: <laughs> the year uh, I was born.
2: <laughs> there it is. Thanks, thanks, thanks a bunch. You're um, welcome. <laughs> and, and so what happened is that summer, uh, when I was about to leave for the army, uh, we were on on at, at this, this station and they do this last um, uh, physical. And what happened when I'm getting the physical done, the doctor says, ah, you got a hernia, you can't go. Uh, So what I need you to do is get your, get your hernia fixed, uh, take three months of recovery, give us a call back and and come back. That was July of 1990. I I remember um, I got my, um, had my surgery on July 5th, uh, took a rest, was waiting. uh, And then uh, August must've been second. I'm I'm trying to think, I I don't know why I remember August 2. Saddam Hussein uh invited Kuwait <laughs> and and so that kicked off uh we sent a bunch of troops over uh into Desert Storm um and I was recovering around September October and uh the recruiter called back and says hey um you still want to come and the truth of the matter is I said uh, I am not really here for that uh and I know some people might get upset Listen, I, when they recruited me, they recruited me saying we had been in peacetime for probably 15, 20 years at that point because the last thing that we were really involved with uh, was the uh, Vietnam was over at least 15 years. And if you get into the Army, it's like a nine-to-five job. You just go, you sit down, and, you know, uh, I was not looking to be shot at, and, and I'm sorry, but it just – so I he said, well, you don't have to come. I said, well, thank you so much. It's time for me to get back into college. Um, with that being said, I got back on track. I really did. I, I had lost the scholarship from uh, Trenton State College, um, but I worked so hard, they gave me my scholarship back, um, and I really had always wanted to go to law school, um, as, as a, uh, a dream of mine. I guess in, in fre- my freshman year of high school, Burlington Township, there was a teacher named Rocco Vizacco. Uh, Great guy. He's just, I mean, he just inspired Uh, me. And and he and I used to uh, argue quite a bit in in class. Um, Now, he was the teacher. I wasn't supposed to be arguing. But uh, instead of throwing me away or giving me detention or anything, he says, Dorian, I need you to stay after one day. I thought I did have detention. And he says, no, I want you to come sit down in this um, mock trial um, team that I'm the supervisor for because I love the way you argue. And man, that thing hooked me. Uh, Mock trial, model Congress, uh, he got me involved in all those things. And uh, at that point at 14, 15 years old, I said, I wanna be an attorney. Um, So uh, many years later after getting off track and then getting back on track, uh, I was able to go to law school at Rutgers uh, University, Camden uh, and get my law degree. Um, I don't know if that answer was too long, too short or what, uh, there's a whole lot more. You said the pastor part, I'll get to in a minute, but yeah. if you have any questions about that first part, we can we can talk.
0: <laughs> Sounds good to me. You're right on track. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I became an attorney. Uh, I graduated law school in 2001. Um, um, I did a one-year clerkship with uh, Judge Smith, uh, and so in 2002, I actually became a- an attorney admitted to the bar. Um, my church didn't start until 2004. Um, it was, it was a weird thing for me. See, I've been a musician, uh, since I was about four or five years old, a singer, my family, my mom sings, my, I mean, family reunions is like a big choir, you know, rehearsal. Um, we, we, we love music. That was my thing. I, my dad's a deacon, my granddad's a deacon. I always thought maybe, you know, maybe I'll be a deacon one day, but I certainly had no aspirations or thoughts about uh, being a pastor, um, maybe a preacher, uh, but uh, God started to speak to me in 2002 um, and really say, I want you to, to lead my people. Well, I'm, I fought for two years, <laughs> ran, hid, cried, um, pleaded, uh, negotiated, and, and, and at the end of that two-year um, uh, running, God said, no, I, I still want you to lead my people. And uh, that was a strange, strange experience for me. I grew up in a Black Baptist traditional church. Um, the the process there is, um, if you feel like you're being called into the ministry, you, you tell the pastor. He usually has you be a part of some, you know, um, process or or a Bible study or something special. And and one day they they license you into the ministry. You become a minister. Um, Many years later, if, if they like you enough, you can become a reverend. You get ordained. Um, and then at some point, uh, you get to put in your application at, at churches and you start a church. Not just not start a church, you, you, you candidate for a pastor of a church that's already started. That was my background. Um, 2002, uh, like I said at the beginning of my, my journey, God told me and my wife it was time for us to leave uh, that church. That church that I was third generation in, that most of my family was still there, um, it shocked me. Uh, it dismayed most of my family. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you if you've been in a church for a long time. Uh, the, the culture at that time was if you leave this church, you're leaving God. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, no, I'm, I'm not leaving God. I'm just leaving this church. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but listen, I, I I heard God really speak to me. Uh, almost like Abraham, it's time for you to leave your father's house, leave your family, leave everything you know. Um, and we went and we joined. Uh, now, that church was about 1,200 seats, a huge church. Uh, I was the musician for, I think, three or four of the choirs. Our largest choir, the one choir that I had, had over 85 people in it, just in the choir. So, wow. I mean, it, it was a huge church. We joined a, a startup church in 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 the pastor's basement. Uh, So total culture shock for us, first of all, Um, it was in in a basement. Uh, And in fact, I'll never forget, I had friends laughing at me from my last church, saying, Oh, you have church on the couch. Well, (laughs) but, but let me tell you, me and my wife experienced God in a new, fresh way in that basement. I mean, the Holy Spirit was there like I had never experienced before. And that started an entire new journey. Now, that, that started a journey for me um, with the Holy Spirit. Growing up, I knew the Bible. We learned the Bible. It was, it, was, it, was, it was drilled into us. We were, you know, we were Bible-believing, Bible, you know, in fact, our, our motto was church with an open Bible. I mean, so we, we learned the Bible. I hate to say this because somebody might be watching, but in my, in my growing up, I didn't experience the Bible as much as I knew it. Um, and at this church, we began to experience the body, the Holy Spirit moving, healing, speaking in tongues, which I was often told was something for another time, um, uh, not just speaking in tongues, but we had people interpreting tongues, which blew my mind. Um, then this the the, the uh, setup was that there were two pastors. Well, I had never heard of a church with two pastors. Uh, in fact, I had heard, Anything with more than one head is a monster uh, until I started to to read Acts. And the truth of the matter is the Old Testament, you can't find a church that specifically says there was one pastor. It says appoint elders, uh, bishops, uh, you know, um, pastors. So, and in fact, when you went to Jerusalem, all of the disciples or the apostles were there together. Uh, So the truth is the model that I was seeing was more uh acts church than what i had grown up with um and then on top of that one pastor was black one pastor was white i had not seen uh a, a multicultural uh you know uh, working together uh and when i tell you our the church was multicultural it was white black we had hispanics we had asians and and again that blew my mind because that was just not my um my experience growing up uh so that set me on a path. Uh, in fact, that's where I met Jerry. You you, you, uh, you and I met because of Jerry. Mm-hmm. Jerry and I met there. His dad was one of the pastors. And man, uh. just, a, just a heart for God, man. It just really, uh, and that was another thing. Jerry uh, Jr. was there part of the youth department at the time. I mean, he must have been 15, 16, 17 years old. But he and the youth had a heart and a passion for God that I was not used to. in in my context, you were excited about church because your friends were there until about 13, 14, 15. Then you're just mad that your parents make you go, you know, and it wasn't a passion for God a chasing after a searching. And so that when I saw the young people at this church, you know, not just adults, but you know, the young people chasing after God and the men, Again, not my, my experience. We used to see the women, they get excited about God and you know that sort of thing, but the men weren't worshipers. We would you know kind of wait till they get done all that. And now it's our turn.
3: <laughs> um,
2: so to learn worship from me again was a totally different experience. I, I call that my Damascus time. Hmm. Uh, hmm. and um, so that was me, and at the end, now that church uh, started to grow, and at some point uh, it, it dissolved. Um, and at the dissolution of that church is when God really said, now's the time for me. Uh, I had preached there at that church twice. Uh, they had been grooming me and my wife for leadership, uh, but we certainly weren't ready as far as I was concerned to, to jump into that role. But God said, now's the time. And um, man, you don't have enough time for me to tell you <laughs> the word for that. But uh, we started our church restoration station in, in uh, February, 2004. Um, So we just we celebrated um, 16 years this year uh, and have been still thriving, striving to be multicultural, Holy Spirit filled, um, uh, praise and worship oriented, uh, community outreach oriented. You know, evangelism is huge at the church um, and just creating a space, creating a place where people can go and get healed, delivered, um, feel accepted and loved. Uh, as opposed to uh, beat up, which a lot of people feel when they go to church. Hmm. Was
0: that the church that you um, were a part of that kind of formed you? Was that Mr. Rogers? Was he the other pastor?
2: was the other pastor. Wow. That is such
0: a small world. Okay. I went to high school with uh, Adrian. That's a side note. But okay, I have a little context now because I know that family. Okay. So, wow. I didn't know that you and Jerry went back that far. That's amazing. And uh, yeah, you pretty much nailed Jerry on the head, you know, like even at that age. Just always, (laughs) always a passion for missions and for the Lord and what he's
3: doing. Absolutely. It was
2: strange Um, for me, but it was, it was inspirational. It was definitely inspirational. Yeah.
0: So, you know, one of the reasons, Pastor Jordan, I asked you on is because obviously in our culture right now, especially, things are super, it's a weird, it's a crazy time, right? You have this pandemic that came out and, you know, um, early 2020. And then you have really, um, racial tension back in the spotlight because of the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, among others, of course. Those are the ones that made national, um, you know, that hit the national spotlight. And you obviously, you know, have a whole different life experience than I have or Robert Jordan has. And, you know, it's kind of funny, because you mentioned how um, you kind of grew up in a certain context, and you kind of, you know, like you said, you knew the Bible, maybe didn't experience the Bible. And I yes. kind of grew up in a, in a place where I thought I knew the Bible. But now I'm, as I'm studying more, I'm <laughs> like, man, I I didn't really know the Bible. And that's not right. because anyone was bad or misleading in my tradition. They just they thought they knew what they knew. They passed on mm-hmm. to me. And as you know, Robin Jordan and I are often listening to different podcasts and different people, we're just discovering how vivid and how real the Bible is and how really, um, in a lot of ways, human it is. It speaks to the human conditions so well. Absolutely. So you know I was wondering I would love really your perspective on really gl- growing up a black man in America. You know, mm-hmm. sharing some of that experience um what have you experienced if you don't mind sharing that with us? Um sure. and kind of kind of going from there because I think you you have just a, such a different experience than I've had. I would love to hear about it. Sure.
2: Um it was strange in my house growing up. It was a good strange, but it was strange. Let me tell you. Dad is from I mean, his family's from Florida, but they moved to Burlington uh, in '43. Uh, so pretty much, Burlington is is his thing, his context. My mother's from uh, Kenston, North Carolina. Um, uh, all right, <laughs> it, it's good for you, <laughs> but but her experience growing up, it wasn't so good for her. Mm. So so in in the house, I had dad who. <laughs> Now, I love my dad. He's just as naive as they come. He's just the greatest guy in the world. But he tells me, I never saw racism. Now, his brother and all his sisters said, you must have been blind. Uh, <laughs> but but he, you know, he, he, he didn't give us a racial context. Everything that, that dad talked about was a scriptural, biblical context. So that's really what I got a lot from dad. Blessed are the peacemakers. You, you know, they should be you know called the the sons of god you know um, blessed are the merciful they shall receive mercy that's that's dad all day long um mom is 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 uh her context is that um coming out of the south it was rough and in fact uh they tell stories of when she was down there and dad would come and visit her um you know he he's shocked and surprised why do we have to go in the back to the movie theater you know, and why do we have to go up the steps and, and, and sit in the, uh, the balcony? Because that was not his context. And um, so she had to explain, obviously, that that's the rules down here. Um, it was it was Jim Crow big time. I mean, when she was growing up, you know, I mean, she was born. I don't want to tell you when she was born, but because <laughs> mom might be watching. But growing up there, uh, certainly in, in the 40s, 50s, and, and 60s, Um, was was a rough experience for her um, in the South. So I had both sides of that. Now, growing up in Burlington Township, I'm telling you, I had the time of my life. I really did. I I loved my school system. I loved my friends. I had white friends. I had black friends. Um, Back then, it wasn't too many others. I I had um, maybe two Hispanic friends. Um,
3: Nowadays, there's a lot
2: of, um, uh, Middle Eastern and Indian and different uh, mixes in our area in Burlington Township. It wasn't so much then. It was pretty much black, white, and, and a few um, others. Um, <clears throat> but we all got, at least what I could see, we all got along. It, it seemed like, you know, we were all friends. We all played sports together, baseball, football. Um, and, and it was, in my mind, a melting pot. Now, there were some times that I saw situations and from my context, I'm like, well, maybe they just forgot about me. Maybe they overlooked me. Um, uh, one time in particular, I was—I was a—I was don't know—is it a junior? It must be sophomore, junior. When they when they picked um, uh, uh, national honor society, um, and I was in all AP courses. I was with you know, quote unquote, the smart kids. Uh, I had great grades. I, I had a lot of friends. I had—I mean—community experience. of so the teachers uh, liked me. This all of the things that now I find out you needed uh, to get into the honor society. Um, But my understanding was that there were invitations that went out. And somehow my invitation was skipped, missed, lost. I don't know what you call it, but I didn't get it. Um, And for years uh, after that, I I was, I thought, well, maybe they forgot me. But then a few people said, well, no, that wasn't the situation. All of the... (laughs) um, honor society kind of looked the same and you didn't fit. So, uh, there, it was there, it was quiet. It was, you know, underground, it wasn't, you know, uh, we never, I don't remember ever being called the N word or anything like that, you know, in my growing up, but, um, looking back, um, some of the, the jobs that were given, even when I was working for the township for a while, you know, uh, seemed like me and my friends would get the the harder, parts of of the job but when you're growing up and you're young a lot of time i just didn't think about it um until one time i was driving i was must have been 19 i was driving up um uh, route 130 going through bordentown and um i got pulled over now that was before the um, supreme court of new jersey said that racial profiling is no no longer legal um it was before that so racial profiling was just a way of life for cops they said listen if these he, if young uh, black male uh, driving certain kind of vehicles, um, if they're coming back and forth, Route 130, Turnpike 295, the, the thought process is they're running drugs from New York to Virginia or Maryland or wherever. Uh, pull them over and just check it out. So they pulled me over. Um, there was no infraction that, in fact, I never got a ticket. And when I looked up after getting, I was reaching over because I knew they were going to ask for my license, registration, insurance card. I'm getting that out. And when I turn around, I, I see a gun in my face at the window of my car. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, the, the cop starts yelling, get out the car. Now, it must have been planned. Only The only reason I say that is because by the time I look up, there's a gun. And he says, get out the car. By the time I open the door, there were two other cars already pulling up. So it wasn't like he called for backup after the stop. It was already, I, I would imagine, planned. And by the time I got out, he said, go lay on the, on the ground in the front of the car. I laid down. There were three or four more cars. I'm telling you, cops were crawling. I mean, it was, it was Bordentown police as well as state troopers. And they started tearing my car. My, it was my mom's car. I was driving my mom's car. I 19 years old. Oh. They're tearing the car apart. I'm scared of them. But the truth of the matter is, I'm laying there. I'm more scared of my mom. I'm like, what is she gonna say? She <laughs> sees this car, you know. Um, but the truth is, you know, finally they come back, they're like, Well, what did you have? I said, All I have is my registration insurance. He was like, you know, um, well then get up. They pat me down, make sure I don't have anything. He's like, Well, okay, you don't have anything, then then you know, where are you going? I was on my way back to college. I'm like, I'm I'm driving to, to Trenton State College. You know, at that point, I must have been a sophomore or something. Uh, He's like, fine. Well, you know, get there safely. And all seven, eight of these cops get in their car and leave. Uh, I do believe that was racial. Uh, I don't imagine. I cannot imagine in any way. I I, I form it in my mind from what happened that if I was a white 19-year-old boy, man, that they would have done the same thing in the same situation. I just don't. Yeah.
0: I mean, as someone who has been a 19-year-old white boy and driven very fast on ready, on crazy roads and had a beat-up Chevy Blazer, I've right. never come even close to having that ever right. happen. And obviously, we all know that individual experiences speak for every single human. However, sure. there are usually patterns that you can start seeing when you either read the data or you have friends or you just hear the stories. Um, you know, most of the people in my circles and my friends who are white. You know, Jerry, Ed, we've never come even close to having i mean i've never been asked to have a vehicle let alone have a gun pulled on me but Uh i have a lot of friends who are black americans who have given Uh me people i know my whole life didn't even know until like Mm -hmm. now they're telling me yeah man there was one time where someone they thought i was someone else and i was like misidentified and i got pulled out with like guns drawn i'm like you did i mean i can't fathom that so uh, that definitely makes sense you know to hear you say that um uh, you know it's it's disappointing and it's You don't want to hear that this is happening to people, you know, but then you hear the story after story after story. You read the news, you hear more stories, and you have to at some point say, well, if there's really widespread evidence, along with data, like we do have data now that in the 2000s, there was a big NJ Turnpike statistic done. And I think cops uh, were pulling over 73% of the pullovers were minority groups, and like almost half of them were asked to step out of the car. It was a huge thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you have that kind of data (laughs) on top of the story, it's hard yeah. to ignore. It's just hard to ignore. It's impossible to ignore, frankly. Yeah.
2: And, and I mean, it was, that, it was that incident that you're talking about where the Supreme Court actually looked into it. New Jersey Supreme Court looked into it, did a huge investigation. Um, the numbers bore out what, what black people knew all the time. They're pulling us over for no reason. Um, the, the cops that, that argued on behalf of the state said, basically, yes, we do that because very often we're right. Um, and we do racially profile, um, you know, and, and and we do it because we're right. Uh, and and the Supreme Court said, well, no, you can't do it based on race. Um, if you have some other probable cause to pull them over, then fine. And if they're swerving, if the light's out, if there's some, you know, some issue, fine, you can pull them over, but you cannot pull them over based on race alone. Um, and so I'm glad that they got rid of that. Now, the truth of the matter is, Anybody that knows, and I work, as you mentioned, I am an attorney. I'm a criminal attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that's a whole nother story. When I got out of law school, um, I, most of my law school days, I worked for the Bronx County Prosecutor's Office um, and was, was, in fact, um, very glad to be on the prosecutor's side. I was a Christian. I was uh, in righteous indignation in my mind. And, um, uh, and, and when I graduated, a friend of mine said, so are you going to, in fact, I did my clerkship with a, with a criminal judge. And people were asking me, so you're going back into the prosecutor's office? And at the time, I didn't wanna necessarily go into the prosecutor's office, but I certainly didn't want to be a criminal defense attorney. Um, I was thinking that that was the dark side, um, that that was for, you know, how can you represent criminals? How can you ever go through, you know, know, and my mentor at the time, um, Reverend Wade Epps, uh, he's passed away since, God bless him. But at the time, he sat down and he said, tell me this. If Jesus was a, an attorney, do you think he would be a prosecutor or a defense attorney? And he kind of caught me off guard. And I'm like, well, I guess he'd be a defense attorney. He said, well, he's the biggest advocate we have. He's certainly the biggest public defender that we have. Yes, we're all guilty. And he argues another chance. Hmm. And I sat there with my mouth open for about five <laughs> minutes. Yeah. Uh, I still had to wrestle with my own heart and mind for another several months. Um, but then <laughs> I started getting calls from people that needed help. Uh, and, and truth of the matter is they were most of them were Christians. Uh, you know, a, a pastor calls say, Hey, I heard your attorney. Um, there's this kid in my church that got a ticket. Can you help him? Mm. Uh, sure. You know hey there's there's this late lady, lady a call who goes to one of the churches I know hey there's my son is in trouble can you help him oh, okay after a while you know I started to see that not only um, would Jesus do it but I think he was requiring me to do it to um, not uh, and, and, and here's what I, I tell people I'm not a hired liar I will not lie for you I won't um, however I will hold the state to its proofs. I will protect your constitutional rights. I will make sure that they have enough proof to to convict you beyond a reasonable doubt, because that's what our Constitution says they have to do. Um, And when, which unfortunately happens more often than not, or or than we'd like to think, if if someone's adding uh, to the story, I'm going to pull that out. If, if whether it's the cops, whether it's witnesses, whether it's you know whoever, if they're throwing extra in the story just to make their story sound better and make you look worse. Well, I'm going to I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to make them eat that because that's my job. Um, and most often my job is to just do all I can to get you into a better position. And now my clients will tell you, I preach to them in, in, in my office very often <laughs> because my, my sermon is it's time to have a better life mm. after this, cause this most often my cases are not the end of the world kind of cases. Mm. It, this is not the end of the world, but when you come out of this thing, you need to start doing a better job, living a better life, you know, so that that's mm. much of, I call my law practice, you know, my ministry point two. you know, mm. so, um, I don't remember what your question was, but <laughs> well, I'm I'm kind if you, of if you want me to keep going, I'll well, start telling you more about the system.
0: <laughs> First off, let me just say I feel like we need like seven more episodes because everything you've hit on I feel can be an amazing conversation. From yeah, from the church and like you said earlier with like the single pastor CEO model, that's yeah. a whole discussion that we've been really far, and I I could talk all day about that. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of self-reflecting here. I, I I can't speak for Robin Jordan, but until you mentioned about would Jesus be a prosecutor or defender? I really had the same perspective that you kind of shared of like, yeah, like defense attorney, like, oh, they're just yeah. like, you know, they just wanna be shady and like lie pretty yeah. much. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I never thought about it till now of well, the reality is that if we believe that, you know, theologically we're guilty before God and Jesus sure. is our advocate, our defender, and he's not gonna lie. <laughs> But he's going to no. admit that, yes, th- this person has them, mama, I'm going to cover them. Right. Um, that has a whole different um, view for me now as far as how I view the very important job of um, a criminal defense attorney. Um, I just watched the movie, for example, uh, Just Mercy a few weeks ago. With my oh, wife. yeah. And that was, uh, that was uh, again, another example of, oh, we need people defending what society says before they're proven as criminals. Because yeah. we really, even though in the law, you know, innocent until proven guilty, as a society, it's definitely guilty until proven innocent. Absolutely.
2: And that Absolutely. makes
0: that makes your job uh, completely necessary because as and I'm sure you're going to share in a few minutes, you know, you see cases where people are yeah. adding stuff. Or um, I read in the case of Rashard, um, I forgot his last name, who who was, um, he was the guy who was passed out in the Wendy's parking lot and he, he fought the cops.
3: Brooks. Brooks, yeah. Brooks. yeah.
0: Um, in the past, he 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 had like an interview about the pr- uh, prison system, and he mentioned that often that he pleaded guilty to extra charges just to lower his sentence, like his, his potential sentence. And I've heard right. of this before, where they'll some of plead guilty to two other charges that maybe they're not even guilty of, but if it guarantees a lower jail st- jail sentence, they'll, they'll do that. Um, yeah. So so reading into that stuff and learning it for the first time has definitely made me really rethink how even wired that oh well he was arrested guilty instead of well he's arrested he needs a defender to advocate for him so can you speak more into that um, as far as that part of your job
2: sure um so the um system if it had um trials for every case would never move so in our criminal justice system only about two percent of cases actually go to trial 98% 98% of them are either plea bargained or, or dismissed. Um, so the the system is set up to move cases faster. Um, so they come up with what's called a plea, plea bargaining uh, system. So yeah, you were charged with, with, with robbery. Uh, however, and robbery uh, is a first degree uh, charge, which means that you can get between 10 to 20 years Uh, in in the state prison. However, if your guy pleads guilty to theft or, you know, um, one of the lesser included, uh, then, you know, it can be a second or third degree uh, charge. And either you come out with just um, um, probation or, you know, a two or three or four year sentence. Now, if your client um if the evidence isn't necessarily necessarily there for a robbery, some people would say, and and, 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 and I, I don't put anything in and I tell all my clients, listen, I can't tell you what to do. All I can tell you is what, what your options are and I can tell you what the state has. And it's gonna be up to you to make your decision as to which way you wanna go. Now, sometimes the state does not have enough evidence to prove a robbery. However, if you wanna roll the dice, quote unquote, and go to trial, if the jury thinks that there was enough to prove you guilty of, of, of robbery, then you're going to jail for quite a long time. However, if you plead to theft, um, I can get you uh, uh, um, um, uh, probation for a couple years with a 364 county sentence, which means you go to the county jail for, you know, they say for 364, but you're only there for about 80 days. Now, so you're looking at 80 days on the one hand, or you're looking at possibly 15 years on the other. Um, now, sometimes they originally come into my office and I didn't do either one of them. But the law says I have to present what what the what the offer is, and they have to make up their mind whether they want to take an offer or not. And truth is, very often, if I'm looking at 80 days in the county near my home versus 15 years put in some New Jersey state prison up in North Jersey or down in South Jersey or wherever else they say, well, I'll take the, I'll take the probation. So yeah, it kind of pushes you in that direction. Now here's the systemic part that no one likes to hear about systemic racism.
3: Mm. The only
2: way it, there would be no systemic racism is if you believe that there are no racist cops. Now, let's not even say there's a racist cop. Let's just say there's a regular cop. Most police officers are white. Um, When they approach a black person, just naturally there are uh, inherent biases. There's a difference, as you mentioned earlier, if they approach me versus they approach you which means that whole interaction is going to be handled differently. So, and even if, so if you in that interaction start to say, why in the world, why'd you pull me over? I didn't do anything. You know, um, here's my license, my registration, leave it. You know, very often you're going to be let go. But if a, a, a young black guy says, why you pull me over? What, what, I didn't do anything. You're arguing with me. You know, now now all of a sudden it goes to another level and uh, the officer feels disrespected and now we'll ask for something that, you know, the the, the blackout, I'm not doing that. The moment you say, I'm not doing that, now you're resisting, you know, you're obstructing justice. Now they can pull you out the car. Well, now you don't pull me out. Now you're resisting arrest, you know, and it goes to all of these other levels. So what happens is because of the interactions on the street, the numbers of, of black and brown people are being arrested at a just exponential rate. I mean, we, we make up, I think 14 or 15, not even 15% of, of, of the population in America, yet we make up about 70% of the population in jail. Uh, you can't convince me that African Americans are committing crimes at that rate so much higher than, 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 um, than white Americans. Y- you can't. And then we go to court and I watch. here, here's the system. The judge, most judges by and large are white have to um, 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 often, well in the municipal court anyway, uh, they have to judge credibility. Um, so if you say something in a certain way, a judge will see it as credible. If I say the same thing, but say it in a black way, all of a sudden, like, that's not credible. And I've seen it in, in a case where, you know, i have had clients and um, I'll tell you the truth. Some of my clients, I had a young lady, she's talking and her head is bobbing and she's talking and she's just telling her story and it's her truth. And the judge is sitting there and he said, well, the way she was moving around, I just can't believe she's telling the truth. And, and I'm sitting there like, oh my God. I, I mean, I wasn't there but short of being there, I had enough information that showed that she was telling the absolute truth. I but because he saw differently, he found her guilty. That's, that's just, okay, let's talk about probable cause. Uh, for, as, 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 a, as a stop, um, our history being our history in our country, when a police officer pulls over a young black person, old black person, male or female, most often we get nervous because we're not certain how this thing's gonna end up. Well, nervousness is a check off on, on the list, on the police list right. as to whether I can go to the next level. And, and I get a million uh, police reports that say they were acting nervously, they were sweating, they, were, they had furtive movement movements, uh, their eye, they wouldn't do eye contact. Um, they, they were fumbling with their paper. So therefore I went to the next level. Well, that's systemic because if black people are afraid right. when they get pulled over, now you're going to punish them for being afraid. And then what I've seen is those few that aren't afraid, you punish them because they're disrespectful. There's, there's a problem with the system. Mm. There's a problem. I don't know how to fix it. if, if I hope this isn't about fixing anything today. I'm just telling <laughs> you. <laughs> I, I was ready for your wisdom. Yeah, yeah it was <laughs> wisdom. Man, if I could fix it, I think I'd probably be a rich man, or I'd be, you know, the president or something. <laughs> I, I don't. I really don't know how to fix it. Other than we need more of these conversations. We need to get to know each other better, so that white people know that black people aren't dangerous. So that yes. black people know that white people aren't dangerous. So mm. that. Black people can understand that all cops aren't dangerous and cops can, you know, and unfortunately, uh, police do. They see most people at their worst. I I was at a um, police uh, round table. They asked me to come talk to the police in Burlington Township um, about this issue right after George Floyd. And um, one of the things was that, you know, like they say, we see most people uh, at the worst time of their life. So pretty much. We're seeing them at their worst. So, in their heads, all of a sudden, you know, people just become worse than they are. Mm-hmm. And we need to somehow reboot America's heart, reboot America's mind, both black, white, Hispanic. Uh, I mean, a friend of mine is, is Asian. He said, Good God, after this coronavirus came out, he's getting looked at, he's getting, you know, ridiculed. I mean, we just need a, a total reboot. Uh, and that really needs to start in the church. there's no way our country can reboot its heart if the church doesn't reboot its heart and spirit. Um, so oh, it, it has to start. With
1: yeah, us. that's that's definitely that's kind of the heart of our podcast has always been: what can the church do better in whatever circumstance we're talking about, whatever um, topic we're talking about? How can the church do better to then influence the world around us. And I think one of our our key points from this discussion is from your view as a pastor and from all of your knowledge from being in the system and seeing the systemic racism, how can we as a church do better? And you know, I, I know that's questions that the three of us have asked each other and have asked others. And I I guess what we're what we're really looking for is that the answer to that question: What what are maybe some simple steps that we can all do to just start getting better? Can I yeah.
0: In real quick. For, uh, okay. You, sorry, cut you off there, Pastor Dorian. Um, I was just thinking about um, it's. I think the the pain point for me is that in, listen, we don't have a huge audience here, but uh, you know there are people who will listen to this or people who listen to other stories, and they just won't, they'll just choose not to believe it. And that's the hardest thing for me. Like, right. you know how there's that that movement for a while of you know, believe women. I feel like we need to start yeah. saying believe Black Americans. You know, like please believe them. They're not lying. They're not making this up. They're yeah. not exaggerating. Like these are real experiences. But there's a whole machine that makes yeah. money um, off of spreading like no, it's propaganda. No, it's yeah. not real. No, it doesn't exist. And so much of that has seeped into especially the white evangelical church. And it's difficult. Uh, but I think. And I'm sure Pastor Ian will, will you know, expound on this, but as frustrating as it could be for me, I think we're starting to see some progress of yeah. white evangelicals saying, you know, like maybe I need to start listening because I've been hearing this for a long time. And now I have friends of mine who I love who are black Americans who are saying, sure. hey, hey Tim, like this is really happening to me. And when that right. relationship happens and someone I know Shares their experience. I mean, that's how I changed. Was someone telling me this has happened to me? I'm like, wait, to you? But I know you. You're not like you're not this this imaginary thing in my head out there. Right. You're here.
2: Sure. Well, the the issue, as you just mentioned, is it's a hard issue. Um, the truth is, um, there's a problem. There is a problem. It's been a problem for four hundred or more years. Um, but no one wants to say. That I have a problem, uh, and, and and you know let's 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 take it, make it easy. I don't know. I know Tim, you're married. I don't know if the other Rob or, or Jordan are married. But listen, when my wife says, you know, you just don't clean up your room. I don't want to hear that. you know. And the truth of the matter is, first thing I'll say, yes, I do.
3: <laughs>
2: Anybody that looks in the room can see it's not clean. But I don't I don't, I don't want to hear that I don't clean up you know, my, my, my office. And therefore, so what I'll do is say, well, well, then you don't, you don't clean up your office. (laughs) You know, uh, or, or you didn't do this, or you didn't, and and what happens is as a system, uh, as, as a culture, uh, and I get it, white people in general, I don't want to feel bad about who I am or what I've done. And Mm -hmm. so many will say, well, you should be over racism because slavery ended 150 years ago. Yeah, yeah, slavery ended 150 years ago, but racism didn't. I mean, as a result of racism, we, we yeah, um, um, slavery ended, but we didn't get a right to vote till about 60 years ago. Um, and then even now, systemically, they're redlining, they're doing things to move, you know, the, the, the um, gerrymandering and all all these different things to make sure that the black vote doesn't count very much, it's still happening today. So for someone to say, well, that was my great, 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 great granddad and I I can't take responsibility for what he does, but you can take responsibility for what's happening today. Um, So the first, as we we tell anybody, the first step to solving a problem is admitting that you have a problem and saying, listen, Mm -hmm. maybe I haven't seen it the right way or done it the right way or maybe I am um, 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 benefiting from a bad system. That's the other side you know a lot of people talk about you know the, the white privilege and that sort of thing. A lot of people don't I don't want to hear white privilege. I've worked hard all my life I did everything I was supposed to do. I've done the right thing so I don't have a privilege. Well yeah you, you do you do. Um, and it's just a, a, a um, you know it's not saying that you're bad because of the white privilege. you just have to re- recognize that it's there and do your part to not perpetuate it. Um, it should be a something that we all should be treated the same way, equality. So now, what happens in the church? You would think in the Christian church, which is built on, Lord, I've sinned and I need a Savior, it should be easy for us to admit when we're wrong. To admit that we have wrote, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's, right. that's a little cliche. That's something we say in Sunday school, but we don't think it really applies to us. And the truth of the matter is it should, in the church, we should be the first to say, listen, there's some things we need to repent from. And if you want to see that there's an issue, all you have to do is go to 80 to 90% of Christian churches and see that they're all white. They're all black. They're all Hispanic. They're all, you know, when you go inside the church, it's all segregated. Schools aren't, well, some are, but, mm-hmm. you know, they desegregated schools. They desegregated neighborhoods to some degree that that's still going on too, mm-hmm. but they've desegregated jobs and this, but churches still by and large remain segregated. That, that's an issue. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, I go to a lot of churches that are multicultural. And the truth of the matter is one, they're not multicultural. They might be multiracial, but they're not multicultural. There is still a, 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 a mainline culture of that church. Um, and, and what you find is even when there's, um, you know, multicultures, very often there's one culture that's running the place. And um, it's usually and white. <laughs> 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 I'll say it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> very often
2: uh, it, it's a white pastor. You know, white executive pastor is the white. You, you know, you sprinkle a few um, blacks in there somewhere, but usually not at the top levels uh, right. of, of of the church, um, and that that's a problem. Hmm. So, what can evangelical churches do? One, be more welcoming and opening, open, open to people of different ethnicities, and when I say be open to them. Um, as the as the Bible says, we should go out to the highways and the hedges and compel them to come. So, because uh, I've had white people, well, everybody's welcome in my church. <laughs> that's that's not what God calls to do. He said, go ye therefore, go ye, go you there mm. to teach all nations. That means not just your people. Mm. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then bring them in and, and teach them the commandments that, I, that I've taught you. So, you need to go into um, other communities, other places where they don't look like you, and compel them to come. And then, once they're there, we should all, I believe, well, every church is supposed to be uh, grooming uh, Christians to maturity, which part of that is leadership. Uh, you should be, you know, as, as a pastor, they tell the Bible says that our job is to equip the saints uh, for the work of the ministry. So, why is everybody in your ministry? All white you know mm-hmm. the, the, at the ministry level so th- those are some things um, education mm-hmm. as you said you just watched um, Just Mercy great movie there's so many others out mm-hmm. there and, and books and things of that nature where you can uh, start reading and, and, and coming up with you know just getting a, a different perspective because the truth is and it's not just America but it's throughout the world mm-hmm. the winner always writes the history mm-hmm. so the history that I grew up in, in Burlington Township, all my history classes, I didn't learn about Juneteenth. I didn't learn about, you know, many of the the African-American contributions that now I know of. Um, and And let me be honest, many of what I learned is in the last 10 to 15 years. It's not even something that You know, I learned in college, you know, some of it was because I had some friends that were, I had some militant friends in college, so uh, they, they get mad at me now because I'm not militant enough, you know, but, but, you know, they started teaching me a lot of black history and Mm. um, um, even African uh, culture and history and things that I, I didn't know anything about. Um, And, and so educate yourself and then start to fellowship, really fellowship Mm. with people of, of, of black, brown, of other ethnicities and start to learn their stories. Listen, not not just, hey, what's the latest football game? But, mm-hmm. you know, how is life really? How's everything going What you know, what have you going through? And, and make yourself open so that you can hear and learn. And I think um, our world would be better. The beauty of the next generation for me is I think they're gonna be easier at this because they've had it a lot more in their schools growing up from from kindergarten, you know, where you know they they had just a, a total melting pot, so that it's easier. They've had deeper relationships with people that that are different than them. Um, so I think it's going to be easier for the next generation than it is for mine. Um, and two generations down, I, I don't know where I am. I think I'm, I think I'm X. I think I'm Generation X. I'm definitely not a millennial. I, I'm too old for that. Um, <laughs> But oh, then,
0: grandfather you in
2: yeah <laughs> but then there's millennials and then there's another one down i think there's a z in there somewhere or something. Mm-hmm. but it, it should be easier for for um the generations down uh, because they're, they're living it a lot more but i i encourage us adults to to start now and surround yourself with people that don't look like you
0: yeah it really is interesting i um I read the book recently compromise of uh, the color of compromise by Jamar Tisby. And it's a very big picture overview of just, you know, uh, black American history and black history from like slavery to now. And you just, like you said, there are just things that you're like never knew that. Like never. I grew up homeschooled. I grew up with Christians and it's, it almost, I went through a season where I was almost angry. Like how did I I not know this? Um, And it seems like, there is uh, still an effort to keep that stuff quiet sometimes with some people. That's frustrating because some of it has seeped into the church and it's, um, it makes me aggravated personally, When I'm like, uh, guys, we should be willing to listen um, and learn. And also, like you said, um, not just uh, Oh, we're multi, um, you know, cultural, which really means just multiracial, but we're really just a white culture church, but right. being willing to make ourselves a little uncomfortable, um, one of the analogies I heard that I really liked was um, people often say, you know, we should be a melting pot, but really we should be more like a salad where you have the parts right. are still there, but they're still their right. own, you know, identity, but they they work together. And right. I think that's such a better way of looking at things because in reality, and we have to be honest about this, it just is what it is. In mm-hmm. America, the the melting pot is saying melt to the white culture that we like. It will take the best right. parts of your other cultures and we'll kind of yeah. just commercialize them and call it America. Um, without mm-hmm. celebrating some of that history, right? Mm-hmm. So you know there definitely is work to do. What would you say to white evan- evangelicals? You know, especially ones who maybe think that this is kind of overblown. I've heard people say, you know, social justice isn't the gospel thing. That's like you know that that's Marxism. That's so that's liberal stuff. How would you respond to that kind of stuff? Because I get angry, but you're way more articulate than I am. So <laughs> what would you say?
2: All I would say is do, you know, we wear these bracelets and necklaces and hats that say, what would Jesus do? Jesus, what did he do? He didn't um, 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 get rid of the law. He fulfilled the law. However, he stood up to the status quo. He stood up to um, even the religious people. And he challenged those um, things that were wrong with the religion and celebrated those things that were right about it. Um, we have to be able to say, you know, even to the most religious person, you're wrong. You know, he didn't mind looking the Pharisees in the eye, uh, the Sadducees and uh, the scribes and the lawyers and all the rest of them and <laughs> tell them, listen, yeah, okay, you're twisting that. You're, you're misusing this. Um, you're totally leaving this other part out. Um, and, and what we need to do is really look at the Bible, look at how we are practicing uh, our faith. And say, listen, we don't have it all right. We don't have it all right. We need to um, change some things and 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 be bold about it. So those who are, uh, as the young people say, woke, you're you're woke. <laughs> I'm, I'm learning. <laughs> I I'm, I have a mentorship group where all the young guys teach me the latest terms and all that kind of stuff. So <laughs> uh, for those of you who are woke, just know one: you're going to be persecuted by quote unquote your own. Mm. Uh, but you still need to be. Um, strong and firm uh, and with your convictions and say, listen, no. Even because grandmom did it this way or granddad did it. Listen, I love grandmom and granddad to death. However, I can't do it that way. Mm -hmm. I I have to do it closer to God's way. Then that's really what Jesus came along saying, listen, I was taught how to do it this way, but that's wrong. Mm -hmm. Come on, Paul uh, in Galatians chapter two and three, read that, where he, he said, I had to withstand even Peter to his face because when he would come among the Greeks, he would act like they were less than. And even Barnabas, who was with me the whole time dealing with these non-Jewish people, when 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 Peter came around and the other apostles, even he started to not wanting to eat with the people who don't look like us. Racism is not new in the church. But it always took somebody to stand up and say, it's wrong. It's wrong. We have to stand up and be right and do this the Jesus way. And Jesus's way was that he said, listen, until all nations, that means every race, ethnicity, until all nations receive this gospel. He said, I'm not coming back. Hmm. They asked him, when are you coming back? He said, not until every nation has received this gospel. Uh, So he wanted us all to be a part like god told abram in the, in in, 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 in uh, genesis 12 listen you're gonna, you're going to be a blessing to all nations um your family should touch everyone not just white people but in, in fact abraham wasn't Never mind. That's a whole other discussion for another day. <laughs> <laughs> Abraham, or Jesus, but that's you know. Yes. I, I won't get into that because we might lose your audience.
0: When we bring um, you back on, we'll yeah. we'll, hit, we'll hit them with that one-two punch. You know what I mean?
1: Okay. <laughs> yeah. One of the one of the things that you know I've seen in my own heart, and I see in other people, and it's not it, it's not something that we get away from as Christians, but it's confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. We we only want to listen to the people that confirm what we Absolutely. want to believe. Yeah. And for some reason, we we get like scared to listen to the other yeah. viewpoints. And it's like, but you could learn something. Even if they were 100% yeah. wrong, it doesn't matter. You should still take that time and spend time and say, you know, what is it that you've been feeling? You've been experiencing yeah. it. And walk through it with them. I think that's a very biblical Absolutely. principle to walk with someone through their trials through their tribulations and yeah you give encouragement and you give truth along the way but but this yeah just that that whole attitude of no i can't i can't listen Mm -hmm. to that i can't listen to this story because that that disagrees with what i'm saying who
2: who did jesus hang with more than anyone else he hung with sinners so if you think i'm wrong hang with me if you think i'm speaking different than you if you're going to follow a Jesus model, you hang with those that, that only listen to black type, you know, uh, uh, um, media or, or information or whatever. And it's got to be a certain way. And me and my wife have been very diligent lately to listen to other, you know, something that you wouldn't normally listen to. Uh, don't just watch, what is it? Don't just watch um, CNN. Watch Fox too. You know? <laughs> it is a, it is amazing how, how, how different <laughs> fox and, and, and cnn uh report on things oh yeah um uh in fact if you if anyone can ever find one that is like straight from the middle please let me know because i'd I like to watch that too sometimes <laughs> just to take off a hat and relax and just you know get it straight you know because <laughs> both sides you do have to wade through some of the stuff to totally. get you the, 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 the truth um but yeah, you do need to listen to other opinions. The other, listen, Jesus told them, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, <laughs> you be great witnesses of me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the earth. Samaria is that other is red if you're blue, is blue if you're red, mm-hmm. is 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 D if you're R. Mm-hmm. Is R. Samaria is that other, the, what we call the, the other side of the tracks. He said, I want you to even go there yeah. and be a witness of me there. So you can't just stay on your side of the tracks. And in fact, if you read in Acts, what they did after the day of mm-hmm. Pentecost, they did stay right in Jerusalem until there became, they, begot, they began to be persecuted. God had to allow persecution for them to then spread. And if you read, I believe it's uh, six or seven or eight uh, of Acts, where it says when they were persecuted, Then they went into Judea, and they started to spread out into Samaria, and then they started to start these churches in other most parts of the earth. I believe that's what's going on right now. God is going to allow us to be persecuted, to go through some things, coronavirus, whatever else, um, is is going to give the church a wake-up call to say, do it the way I told you to do it, and we all have to get back on track.
0: Yeah, there's no doubt I would say that— I feel like, and I, you know, could be wrong, but I just feel like there's something different about these this past, I hate to use this terminology, but this past round of yeah. black Americans being killed um by police or by vigilantes. Um yeah. it seems like something finally broke with a lot, a lot of people, um, yeah. especially in the in the white American crowd of like, okay. I mean, that happened to me. I was selling that um these guys last week. Like, when I saw the um Amada video, I'm like, uh, how is it's 2020 how is this and then you hear the Breonna Taylor story which has not gotten nearly enough news for how botched that was and then you have you know the George Floyd video and then it's like okay if 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 we're not waking up now we have I mean this is a real issue and so I I do take some um comfort personally you know and knowing that people I think more and more are Listening to the other side, and for me, I grew up in a conservative Fox News Russian ball household, so sure. listening to the other side has really helped me so much just understand how much, how much bigger the world is than the bubble I grew up in. Um And so it's not my job to pop other people's bubbles. They have to pop their own. Um But I think that we're, I pray that as far as the church goes, that we're kind of on the way here to um, real racial reconciliation, which has to start with repentance and acknowledgement of like, yeah, we've dropped the ball on this, but now that we're sorry, and we're truly, we want to turn and partner. So my last question for you, before we close tonight, Pastor Dorian is, you know, speaking to white evangelicals like myself or Rob, you know, we want to be, we want to be as much for this, this as possible. But I also am kind of realizing that, I can't, you know, white evangelicals should not be leading this. It should be black Americans who are leading the charge. And we're just, I see it like just behind them, like, yes, we're behind you. You know, how do we best support this issue, the change? How do we best partner with you guys to, to make this a real reality for a black Americans? So they're treated equally under the law.
2: Um, so the first thing you have to do is change your thinking. Don't be behind me. I can't change it. You need to be in front of me. Listen, only way to change any system is from the inside. Um, as I was talking to the police officers, no one can change police culture other than police officers, because it's already an us against them. Thing. It's going to take police officers from within to say, listen, guys and girls, this is what we should do differently. Um, the law, you can't change the criminal justice system from outside of it. You, we, inside of it, have to change it white culture is only going to be changed by white people. There's no way that black people can convince you can can tell you that something needs to be different because just like my wife telling me that the, the room is dirty, I'm going to get my back up and I'm fighting whether you know so it's going to take an internal change in me to say, "Oh, shucks, maybe I should get my, you know, my pants off the ground and my <laughs> socks, you know, <laughs> drop them. It's going to take that internal change." So, I do um thank you for being willing to stand behind me uh but it's going to be a matter of really standing with me and in some areas i need you to go out front and stand in front of me <laughs> and say listen i'm bringing him in it took barnabas to bring paul the new paul in to the into the society because nobody believed that paul had changed they were afraid of them. I know you. I've heard about you. You're horrible. And I don't care what you say. You're trying to trick me. It took Barnabas to say, No, no, no. I know this guy and he's real. Believe him. Listen to him. Listen. It's going to take white people to go out front and say, Listen, we're wrong, y'all. We have to change this thing. And we're going to have to change it internally um, in our hearts, in our families, in our churches. We're going to teach our children. We're going to have to sit down at our table uh, at dinner time and talk about you know, the issues that, and face it. And, and, you know, as a family, watch Just Mercy or watch Mississippi Burning or watch Roots or watch, you know, you know, or we're going to do little, my parents used to make me do little book reports and things when I was growing up. Make your kids do a book report on, on Black history and, and you know, uh, um uh, contributions that Blacks have made. Um, whoa, here's, buy your child a Black doll. <laughs> Yeah, huh. just d- little things. There, right. There's a lot of different things that you just would not think of. Right. Um, and, and the, the argument would be, well, I buy my kids dolls that look like them. Yeah, but unfortunately, very often, when I go into the store, most of the dolls look like you. And trying <laughs> to find one or two that looks like my kid is is a tough deal. Mm. So I'm we're faced with it all the time. All, I think all my sisters, I got four sisters. I don't remember them having... Maybe maybe my little sister had a cabbage patch that was black, and it was like one black cabbage patch, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? Totally. Start start mixing black culture into your. Let's make this a salad, like you right. said, <laughs> as opposed to different course meals. Yeah. You know, um, so that that's something I think you can do to help. And this, what you're doing right here, is excellent. Um, I'm just so uh, honored to be invited, um, to on the podcast because this is great. This is when you ask, what can we do, do this because you do have an audience and and, and I'm praying that that audience will grow, um, and grow and grow that, that will have open hearts and open minds. Um, and just to get back real quick, you said you grew up in a, um, uh, Fox News, uh, Rush Limbaugh house. So did I, Mm. Mm-hmm. Which a lot of people don't know. I grew up. Rush Limbaugh was back when I was growing. He was on eight eighty, uh, AM.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, and, and I used to watch, you know, listen to, uh, focus on the family. All the time. I, and I listened to, uh, you know, um, uh, my grandma's favorite was, um, oh, why wow, did I just forget his name? See, I know a- Andy Stan, his his father. Um, uh, Charles. Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley. Yeah, man. We went down to a family reunion in in in, in Georgia and we were going to the family church our, our family my grandmom had a fit that we wouldn't take her to go see Charles Stanley because she just <laughs> absolutely loved so i mean you know much of our experiences are the same mm. and that's really what we need to find out in our culture we are much more alike than we are different
0: mm. right well honestly we know we could be here all night we are out of time for this episode and i Assure you, we definitely want to have you back to dive a little bit deeper into some of these topics. Um, it'd be great to have you on for a church discussion because I, I know, and I think this is correct. Coming from wrong, at one point the Restoration Station was going to different churches, and you were encouraging people to tie that at that church as they visited. Is yeah. that correct?
3: Yeah. yeah, yeah. When we
2: first started, for about ten years, uh, we were renting uh, from another church. We didn't have our own location, so our services were at three in the afternoon. So we did what we called every second Sunday we had what was called second Sunday visits. We would visit other churches. Um, we, I mean, we've been to black churches, white churches, Hispanic churches, Baptist churches, non-denominational. Uh, uh, um, we went to an Episcopal church. And uh, my friends, my, my, my members were a little sh- scared because they all drank from the same cup. Like <laughs> it,
3: was,
2: it was a little culture shock. But mm. we, we would. And, and what I told them is, is we're going in as the body of Christ. I'm not there to preach. I'm not there to teach. We're just there to be a part of the body. And what I want you to do is sow. So make sure that when you go in, you give generously so that they just feel that there's more than just their four walls that are in it with them and for them. So.
0: Yeah, so we can have a whole episode on that, which I'm sure one day we will. So.
2: Pastor Dorian,
0: thank you for coming on. I love what you had to say. I have so much to think about. And um, like you said, may we be united and uh, multicultural in the truest sense, Um, taking the best in in the history of rich cultures and Mm -hmm. uh, moving forward together. So thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, Thank Thank you you for having me. For sure. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Rob, am I still alive? Yep. Great. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I know we had some live stream problems and some mic issues, but luckily Rob recorded this. We will get it on the podcast um, as soon as possible. We will see you guys, I believe, next week.
1: Thanks for checking out the Coffee, Theology, and Jesus podcast. You can always drop us a line on Facebook or through our email, podcast at coffeetheologyandjesus.com as we love to hear from our listeners. Until next time, drink coffee, discuss theology, and love Jesus.